Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good afternoon and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Last night, President Trump bizarrely and falsely accused me and other members of the news media of breaking the law by reporting on him. The president has been falsely accusing all sorts of folks in the media and politics of breaking the law in various ways these days, promoting a conspiracy theory that a different TV news anchor is responsible for a murder. His sons are out there pushing deranged memes about their father's Democratic presidential challenger as a pedophile, and on and on. It all seems clearly designed to distract from the horrific health, death, and economic consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. And that, of course, is what we here at The Lead are going to continue to focus on as the United States nears 90,000 deaths from coronavirus and almost 1.5 million cases. And if the trend continues, we could see 100,000 deaths in the U.S. by next week. As of today, all 50 states are now reopening some non-essential businesses or have a plan to do so, even as about... A third of the states in the U.S. still have coronavirus case numbers on the rise. But there are some promising signs today coming from at least one vaccine maker. And this news is helping to drive up stocks, the Dow closing up about 900 points just moments ago. We'll have much more on the economy in a few minutes. But first, CNN's Nick Wad is going to bring you the latest on that search for a vaccine. In the worldwide scramble for a vaccine, good news. This is really a very first important step in the journey towards having a vaccine. All eight subjects in a phase one trial developed effective COVID-19 antibodies. Next up, phase two with maybe 600 subjects. If they can enter into phase three by July, again, the goal of being able to get to a vaccine by early next year Uh, I think becomes more realistic. So today, Massachusetts became the 50th and final state to lay out its plan to reopen. Construction and manufacturing are back. On May 25th, retail establishments may also offer curbside service and some personal services such as barbershops and hair salons may reopen. In roughly a third of states, the new case count is now going down, holding steady in another third, and in the final third, it's actually going up. Texas, two weeks after reopening began, saw some busy bars and the biggest number of new cases in a single day on Saturday. Yes, there is more testing now, but... The opening of restaurants and movie theaters and and retail and and our malls up to 25% occupancy a couple weeks ago. So I think that's probably the main reason. Still, gyms opened up at reduced capacity in Texas today and the governor announced phase two. Starting immediately, child care services are able to open. Beginning this Friday, May the 22nd, a long list of businesses can now reopen or expand capacity. Gyms in New Jersey are not yet allowed to reopen. This one did anyway. 
Here's how Camden County cops reacted. Have a good day, everybody. In South Carolina, some stores opened exactly a month ago and in-person classes will resume at the University of South Carolina in the fall, but they'll revert to remote learning after Thanksgiving because... Our best current modelling predicts a spike in cases of COVID-19 at the beginning of December. The WHO says it will start ASAP a review of the global reaction to this coronavirus, saying we must learn to prevent a repeat. We have been humbled by this very small microbe. And... Some good news for sports fans, Jake. Texas said that a week from Sunday, some pro sports will begin again. They're talking auto racing, basketball, baseball. No fans, but it will be on TV. California hoping to do something similar early June. New York's governor said he will help leagues start again whenever they feel they can. Also here in California, they're hoping to allow church congregations within a few weeks and also legal haircuts once more, which is good news for those of us who've been trying to cut our own these past couple of months. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. And joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, let's start uh, with uh, positive news, uh, the vaccine. Uh, Moderna uh, said early results, early results show that people in this study developed antibodies against the virus. So, mm-hmm. so explain to us what that means. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is encouraging news, Jake. Uh, what, this is a whole new different kind of vaccine. Uh, they, what they did was they took a, a blueprint of a little piece of the uh, virus and they used that essentially uh, to inject into the body. The body then creates this piece of the virus over and over again and the body makes antibodies to it, okay? Uh, that's a little bit hard to, to understand maybe, but this is a whole new different kind of vaccine. In the past, Jake, you take a little piece of the virus and give that to trying to elicit an antibody response. This is brand new. We didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, this is uh, we're seeing the results now for the first time together. And what we're seeing is that when they gave even the lowest doses of this vaccine, the body, the, the people who got the uh, the uh, virus, the vaccine, did make antibodies, and they made antibodies at the same level as if they had become infected. So when you get infected, you make antibodies. When you get a vaccine, you make antibodies. This seems to be the same now with, with the amount of antibodies. You gave more vaccine, you got even more antibodies. Now, I'll, I'll just explain this. When you actually put the antibodies and the virus in a test tube together, those antibodies then seem to neutralize the virus, which is what you want to see, that neutralizing mm-hmm. activity. Is it actually going to have an impact on the virus? And the answer seems to be yes. Uh, these are early studies, very, very early data. Uh, Jake, but this is proof of concept, and and um, you know I I've never seen this work before. Uh, the investigators haven't seen it work before in humans. So if this carries out, I mean that that could potentially be some good news. Yeah, potentially fantastic news. So that's phase one. What are the next steps as uh, Moderna looks to go to phase two and then phase three in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, well, let me show you the timeline quickly because this is at the heart of all the discussions, right? When might this be available? Phase two was already announced. They already knew they were going to go into phase two. Uh, that's going to be larger trials. They're going to do that through sort of the end of the summer or beginning of July sort of time frame. If that still seems to show these results uh, where you have uh, this, this, these signals of efficacy, then they're going to start going into phase three trials sort of by the end of summer or early fall. I mean, the, the timeline's a little loose there. And each time you go into a new phase, Jake, 
you're incorporating more and more people and you're trying to get a sense of what is the right dose, what is, uh, who are the right populations of people that are going to most benefit from this, uh, elderly, children, people in between, people with pre-existing conditions, might there be booster shots that are necessary? All the, these are all the sorts of questions I want to sort of answer. Important thing, Jake, and you and I have talked about this, but the, the U.S. government is going to make a bunch of gambles. They're probably going to look at this vaccine from Moderna, a few others, and they're going to just go ahead and start manufacturing this even before those phase three results come in. That's what uh, we heard from this Operation Warp Speed press announcement. Uh, it's, it's a gamble because it costs a lot of money to do that. But the reason you do it, Jake, as you might right. guess, is then you have the vaccine uh, available. Does this make the vaccine uh, timeline, uh, theoretically, that we could have something uh, in 12 months, 18 months, uh, th- that timeline that we've, we've heard Dr. Fauci and others say, does it make it seem more likely? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess what Dr. Fauci has said since January, since the beginning of all this, when they started working on the vaccine, was 12 to 18 months. Uh, he's always, um, you know, it's, it's always a, a loose time frame, but 12 months would obviously be January of next year. 18 months would be the summer of next year. I mean, it, it's, I guess, possible to start being able to, to vaccinate people by early next year if this still goes forth. Again, we're, this is very early data, but if it, if it continues to have this sort of efficacy, this sort of effectiveness, you could have some people start to get vaccinated by early next year. Not, probably those would be healthcare workers, people who are at great risk. And then you start to gradually increase the population of people who get vaccinated. I think the question will be how long does it take for the vaccine to kick in? For example, with this study, it was about 43 days when you started to see enough antibodies to start neutralizing the virus. So, you know, what, what is that, a uh, month and a half? So you, you, you have to think about, does someone need a booster shot at that point? There's all these considerations, is my point, Jake. But yes, uh, is the answer to the question. Uh, early next year, spring, summer, around that time frame is conceivable. Well, t- let's talk about uh, side effects, because um, Moderna said that, they, that there, there are some side effects, including a fever in, in certain patients. Um, how, how concerning is that? Yeah, they, they, uh, one of the things that the NIH came back to Moderna with early on and said, you know, in addition to testing this vaccine, we want you to start doing various dosing trials. So they're doing anything, everything from 25 micrograms to 250 micrograms. That's 10 time, tenfold difference. Uh, we actually interviewed one of the uh, participants who received the 250 microgram and, and exactly what you said. He had fever. He had uh, sort of malaise, did not feel well for a couple of days, he said, and then recovered um, and, and felt fine at the time that we talked to him, which was a couple of weeks after he received that second shot. The first shot uh, he felt fine with. It was the second shot that caused these symptoms. Uh, that's going to be a question mark. And keep in mind that most of these trial participants are you know, pretty healthy people otherwise. What happens when you give it to people with pre-existing conditions, people who are elderly? That is the, mm. the whole dosing regimen that sort of needs to be figured out here because it might be different for certain people. Certain people may need to get smaller doses and then a booster and so forth. And, of course, we, we need to continue addressing this with humility given how little we know about this and why it kills yep. some people uh, and not others. So I, I want to, before you go, I, I want to ask you about this piece you wrote for CNN.com uh, called If the United States were my patient. Uh, a really interesting piece, and you write, quote, we have been infected, and we are only partway through the miserable therapy. If we stop now, however, it may not just be back to square one. We may be worse off than we started. The metaphorical resistant bacteria may be unleashed. Explain what you mean by that. Why do you think we could be worse off? 
There, there was two points. Uh, you know, keep in mind, uh, Jake, when we started uh, the, the pause uh, in this country, sort of encouraging people to start staying at home in the middle of March, there were some uh, 80 people who had died at that point and around 4,500 people who had been infected. And it was enough of a concern at that time to say we need to initiate these stay-at-home measures. Uh, it seems a little, little uh, hard to understand why now when we have as many people as you see on the screen there infected uh, and as many people who have died, now we're saying it is time to reopen. Uh, the, va the, the virus hasn't changed. It's still out there. It's still contagious. My concern is that if you have that many people who are infected and you start to open things up, you could start to get significant clusters, uh, even more so than at the beginning of when we started this, this whole process. Uh, by the way, I should just clear, clear you know, the, the bacteria is obviously treated by an antibiotic. This is a virus. But the point I was making there was that if you give an antibiotic therapy, you're always told to take the full course, right? If you stop halfway through, then sometimes what you do is you, you, you kill the easy to kill bacteria and the hard to kill bacteria remain, they start to replicate and the infection overall becomes harder to kill. I was trying to draw a metaphor there, but I was in the hospital taking care of patients over the weekend thinking about how do I have these conversations with patients and realizing that over the last few months, it's been a very similar conversation about what's happening in the country. So I thought, you know, to sort of you know, humanize this a little bit for people to make them understand why this therapy is necessary, why we have to be diligent and thorough with it. I thought I would draw on this example of the country as a body. Our people should check it out. It's on CNN.com. Sanjay, thanks so much as always. And be sure to listen to Sanjay's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction. You can get it wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up as the death toll nears a devastating 90,000 people in the U.S. Trump administration officials are publicly arguing over who is responsible with a dispute over the CDC happening all over television. Plus, man's best friend can detect many diseases in humans, but are dogs able to sniff out coronavirus? That story ahead. In the politics lead today, a feud between top Trump administration officials and their own health experts has spilled into the public view. Today, after the White House trade advisor went on national television and accused the CDC of letting the country down when it comes to testing, Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar rebuked those comments as, quote, inaccurate and inappropriate. And a senior CDC official accused the Trump administration of ignoring the science. CNN's Jeremy Diamond now reports for us. With the U.S. death toll nearing 90,000, President Trump and his top officials are shifting blame, finding scapegoats everywhere but inside the White House. Peter Navarro, a top White House official, pointing the finger at the Centers for Disease Control, whose initial coronavirus test kits malfunctioned. Early on in this crisis, the CDC, which, which really had the most trusted brand around the world um, in this space, really let the country down. And that did set us back. A senior CDC official telling CNN in response, this administration has shown time and time again that it has a problem with science. We are giving them science and they don't seem to want it. I'm Alex Azar. And Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar also firing back, putting the infighting out into the open. The comments regarding CDC are inaccurate and inappropriate. The Azar CDC instead tied the U.S.'s high death toll, higher than any other country's, to pre-existing health issues among Americans, 
not the administration's response. We have a significantly disproportionate burden of comorbidities in the United States, obesity, um, hypertension, diabetes. It's about simple, simple epidemiology and stating that if we have hypertension, if we have diabetes, uh, we present with greater risk of severe complications from, corona, from this coronavirus. As for the president and his spokeswoman, they are firing at a familiar target. Perhaps I should uh, redirect your question to President Obama, who left the stockpile empty. President Obama left it empty and took President Trump to refill it. Today, President Trump echoing that false criticism, claiming he was left little by Obama, even though he was in office for three years before the coronavirus began to spread. Look, he was an incompetent president. Trump is also attacking Obama on other fronts, implicating his predecessor, in a baseless conspiracy via Twitter, as Obama spent part of the weekend taking veiled swipes at Trump's handling of coronavirus. This pandemic has fully, finally torn back the curtain on the idea that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing. A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. As Obama addressed graduates, Trump was at Camp David, huddling with conservative allies, where one source said he was highly focused on how to make his latest Obama conspiracy theory stick. And Jake, the president today was once again unable to define the crime that he claims that the former president uh, committed, uh, saying only that uh, he believes President Obama directed the counterintelligence investigation uh, into his campaign. Earlier today, though, Jake, uh, the attorney general, Bill Barr, said that he does not expect uh, that the review of the Russia probe will lead to criminal uh, criminal investigation into former President Obama or former Vice President uh, Joe Biden. President Trump today uh, responding to that, saying that he was surprised uh, by those comments and insisting once again he has no doubt that President Obama and and Vice President Biden were involved, again, without any evidence. Jake? No evidence. He likes to make things up like that all the time. Uh, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. Coming up next, the Fed chair's theory on how long it might take for the U.S. economy to recover as a critical industry returns to work. Stay with us. In our money lead today, hopes of an economic jumpstart today as the big three U.S. automakers reopened idle U.S. factories. 59,000 workers could restart today at Ford, 16,000 at Fiat Chrysler, and 15,000 at General Motors. Each plant promised to take precautions to protect workers, such as temperature checks as employees arrive, spacing out workstations, and allotting time in between shifts to clean. Fiat Chrysler put up plastic dividers in dining areas to separate workers. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley now to talk about this. Julia, you say reopening is a big test for the automakers. It's a huge test. Can you run an efficient business while keeping thousands of workers safe? That's the bottom line, but there are other big tests here, including the supply chain, also end consumer demand. Does that recover? But cars need parts and these suppliers that feed these automakers have been without money for weeks too. That's a huge risk and they're struggling at the same time. In the end, this is an industry that supports 10 million American jobs. There's now a bipartisan push to get targeted loan support to some of these businesses. There's talk I've heard of uh, of bringing back the cash for clunkers program from the Great Recession, 2009, when the Obama administration offered consumers rebates to buy uh, new cars. Might that be motivation, enough motivation to convince people to spend money on cars now? 
Some consumers, yes. But one of the big criticisms, what, over 10 years ago, was that it favoured wealthier buyers. You could argue that's even more of a problem with the jobless rate that we've got right now. It also meant more sales for the big automakers, but it also crushed the used car industry and the aftercare service. In the end, it's going to come down to desperation. Morgan Stanley thinks we could see sales drop 30% this year, and that gets a cash for clunkers mark too across the finish line. I'd argue there are probably better ways to spend this money. Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell had a a number of headlines in his CBS interview. Uh, One of the biggest was that uh, economic recovery uh, may stretch through the end of 2021. Um, You believe that his comments made on 60 Minutes were, were intentional? For a couple of reasons. He can't tell lawmakers what to do, but oh boy, can he spell out the risks. And that's what he did once again. Depressioneer jobless rates, a growth collapse in this quarter, a long and drawn out recovery. He used it basically to say more support is required. Congress, do the maths. And are you listening? You need to spend money and you need to do it quickly. But he also sent a message of confidence to the American public. He said, look, we will recover. We'll get through this. Don't bet against the American American economy. We just have to get to that point first. And we're going to hear uh, directly from Powell and the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, tomorrow um, at the Senate. They're going to testify. Uh, Again, the audience is going to be important for Powell. We're going to get polite Plow as always. He's always very cautious about the way he approaches this, but the message again is clear. Businesses need to be in a position where they can rehire. Workers need to be incentivized to go back to work, but at the same time protected. Do we have those conditions right now? Not yet. And that's Congress's job to fix it, not the Fed's. All right. CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, as always, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Uh, coming up, President Trump has now fired or replaced four watchdogs of his administration. In just the last six weeks, he just addressed the latest move moments ago, the president's comments. Next. Breaking news as the U.S. passes two more grim milestones, 1.5 million new cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus, and we have now also passed 90,000 deaths, at least, from coronavirus. This, as President Trump is taking questions at the White House, he just mentioned that he is taking hydroxychloroquine, the medication the president has promoted in the past as a potential treatment for coronavirus, though the FDA says that you shouldn't take it uh, outside of a clinical trial of the hospital, and other studies have shown it doesn't work on coronavirus. The NIH has also issued warnings about using the drug for coronavirus patients. I, I want to bring in uh, Jeremy Diamond uh, uh, joining me now. Jeremy, wh- wh- what exactly did President Trump say? He- he's-, he's taking hydroxychloroquine? Uh, Yeah, Jake, uh, President Trump has repeatedly touted this drug, but he just announced uh, moments ago for the first time that he himself has actually been taking hydroxychloroquine for the last week and a half. And the president says that he's taking it essentially as a prophylaxis to try and prevent getting the disease in the future, uh, despite the fact that there is so far no uh, uh, substantive medical evidence to back up the fact that it works uh, not only as a treatment, but uh, all the more as a prophylaxis. Listen to what the president said just a few moments ago. It's been around for 40 years for malaria, for lupus, for other things. I take it. Frontline workers take it. A lot of doctors take it. Excuse me. A lot of doctors take it. I take it. 
And, and Jake, uh, just we should note there, as you were saying at the top, uh, no studies so far have shown that this is an effective treatment uh, against coronavirus. In fact, there was a pretty significant study uh, that showed that there was no effect on mortality or on the duration of a, a hospital patient stay in the same way that we have seen uh, with the drug remdesivir. But President Trump certainly putting his money where his mouth is uh, with this. The question, though, Jake, is what effect is this going to have on the general population? Uh, you know, what are people going to think when they see that President Trump, the president of the United States, is taking this drug, despite the fact that it does not have any proven medical benefits? Uh, will Americans then want to take it themselves? That certainly is a big question here, Jake. Uh, and, and again, uh, we do know that this drug has significant uh, side effects, including uh, potential heart issues for people. So uh, certainly something that could be concerning. Jake? Yeah, no, no medical evidence that it, that it helps or prevents uh, coronavirus. Uh, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. In that same event, President Trump uh, is also uh, answering questions about his firing of the State Department Inspector General, Steve Linick. Linick was investigating Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, President Trump said he didn't know Linick. I never even heard of him, but... Uh... I was asked to by the State Department, by Mike. Uh, I offered uh, most of my people, almost all of them, I said, you know, these are Obama appointees, and if you'd like to let them go, I think you should let them go. Secretary Pompeo also just told The Washington Post uh, that he was not aware of the investigation into whether or not he was misusing a political staffer to do personal errands, but he claimed Linick was not working to make the department better. A Democratic aide told CNN this weekend that Linick had indeed been investigating whether Pompeo made a political staffer perform personal errands, including walking his dog. Um, take a listen. And now I have you uh, telling me about dog walking, washing dishes. And you know what? I'd rather have him on the phone with some world leader than have him wash dishes because maybe his wife isn't there or his kids are there. You know, what are you telling me? It's terrible. It's so stupid. You know how stupid that sounds to the world? Unbelievable. Linux firing is the fourth government watchdog in charge of overseeing the Trump administration to be fired or removed. The editorial board of the Boston Globe is now calling on Congress to fight back, the editorial board writes, the Trump administration is building a veritable trophy wall decorated with the heads of government watchdogs until congressional leaders work up the nerve to respond with something stronger than finger wagging. There's no reason to think this abuse of presidential power will stop. Joining me now is the Boston Globe's editorial page editor, uh, Bina uh, Venkatraman. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you write, quote, it's past time for Congress to use its constitutional power to withhold funds for presidential projects and White House activities to, to curtail the attack on federal watchdogs. So what exactly do you think Congress should do? Well, there are a few options on the table here. And let's keep in mind, uh, as you mentioned, Jake, that Linick is only the latest in a series of firings that have followed the president's impeachment acquittal, starting with the removal of Michael Atkinson, who was the inspector general of the intelligence community, the whistleblower complaint that led to the impeachment, that perfect phone call account from that whistleblower, the Ukraine affair. Now, what Congress has at its disposal is much more than just the calls for investigation that you've seen coming from the likes of Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, Republican, from uh, Susan Collins of Maine, from Mitt Romney. Uh, if Congress wants to take this seriously, particularly if congressional Republicans want to take 
uh, this affront, this purging of independent, nonpartisan federal watchdogs seriously, uh, Congress can do one thing, which is to not just investigate these firings uh, on an individual basis, but to look at them en masse as a pattern of behavior and understand the motivations behind them. You don't have to look too deep because the president himself has admitted uh, why he wanted to remove Atkinson. He has also openly criticized Christy Grimm, uh, the inspector general of HHS, that he removed uh, health that he removed after a scathing report showing uh, severe testing kit shortage. COVID-19 tests and of PPE across hospitals in the country, hospitals across the country. So I think it's, for one, parading and bringing together this series of firings and oustings to show that they're greater than the sum of their parts. Second, Congress has right. the ability he, to... He, he, yep, sure. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, second, Congress has the ability to withhold, uh, using the purse strings, withhold funding. And that's not an, a power. It's yeah. articulated in Article 1. James Madison wrote about it in the Federalist Papers. It's not a power that they've used to actually uh, hold this White House back. And what we know is that the, this president is sort of immune to uh, calls for decorum, calls for adhering to democratic norms, public backlash against his transgressions. So we need something stronger from Congress here than just the sort of wrist slapping uh, um, woe be gone, um, right. you know, sort of right. this. But, but, he, I mean, he has the, the right to do these firings. I mean, it's not as though it was unconstitutional. It might be setting a precedent that we really don't like and that it's dangerous. And if we replace all the watchdogs with lapdogs, who knows what the next president's going to do, et cetera. Um, but he, he, he has the right to do it. Well, he has the right technically to remove inspectors general, but. Uh, it is very un it is unprecedented, as you note. No president in history has removed en masse groups of inspector generals at this clip, inspectors general. And also, it's important to note that he has the obligation under the 2008 Inspector General Reform Act to notify Congress 30 days in advance, but also to provide justification. And that justification has to go beyond just a simple no confidence vote, like what you saw in his letter to Nancy Pelosi about Steve Linick on Friday night. Uh, Chuck Grassley has pointed out, Republican from Iowa, has pointed out that the president really has to provide a rationale for removing an inspector general based on these reforms that were passed in 2008 to expand the protections for these inspectors general. Now, the whole idea of an inspector general dates back to the founding of the country. Mm -hmm. George Washington insisted on one for the Continental Army. But the real apparatus right. that we have for inspector general in the U.S. grew out of Watergate. So it grew out of a recognition that we needed across federal agencies a check on presidential power, a check on abuses of the executive branch, and internal watchdogs that would right. independently invest incidents. And so if you look at it from the perspective of democratic norms, of protecting the rule of law, of protecting our institutions, it may not be strictly unconstitutional, but it certainly violates mm -hmm. the spirit of inspectors do in our government they serve. And also they're important, the important legacy for the future, yeah. protecting such for, for future abuses of power. Okay, great. Bina Venkatraman, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, provocative editorial. Coming up, they've been trained to sniff out cancer and malaria. Now, could dogs be able to detect coronavirus in humans even before symptoms appear? Stay with us. The future of the fight against COVID-19 might look a little bit furry. A trial is underway in the UK to see if six specially trained dogs can sniff out the virus early before symptoms appear. 
as dogs are able to do for diseases such as Parkinson's and malaria. And now, as CNN's Max, Max Foster reports for us, man's best friend might be the best defense in this pandemic. This dog is being trained to detect prostate cancer. She's presented with urine samples and rewarded when she identifies the correct one. Good girl. What a good girl. This dog is able to identify the odor of malaria sufferers. Their next mission here is to train dogs to sniff out people infected with COVID-19. The way we're going to do that is by collecting using face masks and we're asking people to wear these face masks for a few hours and then we carefully collect those. And the other thing we're going to do is get people to wear nylon socks. That sounds a bit strange, but we know from our previous experience that this is a really good way of collecting odours from people and it's such an easy way to do it. If the training is successful, one of their first deployments is likely to be airports, where dogs are already used to sniff out drugs and other contraband. If they help reopen the travel industry, that could be the boost to international trade that governments everywhere have been looking for. The trial due to last three months. If successful, these dogs could be in airports uh, in three months' time, sniffing up to 250 people an hour, Jake. So it could have a profound effect. All right, Max Foster, thanks so much. Coming up next, one community so remote, so spread out, you would think the virus would not spread, but the exact opposite is happening. Why people living here in this place now have the highest coronavirus infection rate per capita in the United States. Stay with us. In our national lead, coronavirus is ravaging the Native American community, especially the Navajo Nation, which has the highest coronavirus infection rate per capita in the entire U.S. And as CNN's Sarah Seiden reports for us now, limited access to health care and a lack of running water in many areas have contributed to the devastating impact. The beauty of the Navajo Nation masks the vengeance coronavirus has exacted on its people, even in the most remote places. In this household... Out of nowhere, it came about and just whipped through us. Felicita Jones is one of five people in her family who has contracted the virus that takes your breath away. I could just go... But I didn't want to go to the hospital. How afraid were you when you realized that your mom had it, that your sisters had it, and then you had it? I didn't want to leave my kids behind. Because I had so much to do in life with them. I have all together nine kids. She didn't want to go to the hospital because too many people she knows never made it back home alive. This is one of the hospitals where members of the Navajo Nation uh, would be brought if they needed to be in an ICU, for example. The nation's now reporting nearly 4,000 COVID-19 cases in a population of 175,000, which means they surpassed New York and now have the highest infection rate per capita in the U.S. This is partly because the Navajo Nation says it's tested more people than any other state, 11% of its population. But unlike New York, just getting to a hospital with these kinds of resources can take hours. It's really hard for them to get the care they need if, it, if they need to be intubated. They've got to have someone transport them from a facility to a, like Albuquerque, Phoenix, is where we're starting to send people because 
RICU's only eight beds. The Navajo Nation spans 27,000 square miles. There are no short distances here, which is one of the difficulties with getting resources to all of its people. With the exception of here, I'm standing in the four corners where with one step, you can walk into four different states. But with the vast distances, self-distancing might seem easy. It isn't, because mostly everyone shops at the same stores. There are a lot of people living here. The president of the Navajo Nation says infrastructure and resources long ago promised by the federal government were never realized. And now there's a perfect scenario for the virus to spread. 30, 40 percent uh, of our citizens here on the Navajo Nation don't have uh, the luxury of turning on a faucet. They don't have running water. They don't have running water. Also, generations of families often live in one home, so if someone gets the virus, isolation is often impossible, never mind frequent hand washing. And we can change that with the help of the federal government. For now, he's placed the strictest of measures on his people, 8 p.m. curfews on weekdays and on weekends, a 57-hour lockdown. Not even the gas stations are open. And their lucrative tourism and entire gaming industry are closed down until further notice. We're talking more than tens of millions, not just amongst the gaming, not just amongst the tourism, but also all of our other enterprises throughout the Navajo Nation. The COVID-19 battle Native Americans are facing is just like the rest of the nation, except on their tribal lands, the suffering is more acute. Forty percent of families here already live below the poverty line. So when the tribal government traversed their nation handing out healthy food and bottled water, why is this important? For me to eat and my family to eat. The line seemed endless. Many were gathering items to help others survive, like Felicita Jones, still self-quarantining after a bout with COVID. How are you feeling now? Right now I feel great. She feels great because she survived, but we learned that just this weekend, more than a dozen people did not due to COVID-19. We should also mention that because of the spikes here, the president of the Navajo Nation told us that he made an all call for help and help did arrive. He is now getting help from Doctors Without Borders. But Jake, we should mention that Doctors Without Borders starting helping in the United States with the COVID-19 response in New York. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thank you so much for that report. And today, we'd like to remember a father and son lost to coronavirus, Miguel and Daniel Moran. The night that 56-year-old Miguel died in a Long Island hospital from COVID-19-related complications, his son Daniel and four other family members rushed to be by his bedside. Daniel, wearing protective equipment, held his father's hand and promised, quote, one day we'll join you in heaven. Eight days later, the 23-year-old did just that, the father and son now buried together. The rest of the family in that room, including Miguel's wife and daughter, have all sadly tested positive for coronavirus. May Miguel and Daniel's memories be a blessing. Our thoughts go out to the Moran family. Our coverage on CNN continues now, right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.